0: Golgotha is the place where it happened, where the price was paid, where our God demonstrated the love He had for us, where He stretched His hands and died. There is no Resurrection Sunday without Good Friday. To the God we owe everything, we give our thanks. There is only one moment in history that is bigger than this one, and we'll talk about that in the next episode. In this episode, we will talk about the actual moment of the atoning sacrifice of our Lord, and remember that sacrifice.
1: Stay tuned. Welcome to Groundwork, where we dig into scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. I'm Scott Josein. And I'm Daryl Delaney. And Scott, we
0: are on the second to last episode of our Lenten series that focuses in on the significance of the cross. In the first episode, we talked about the why of the cross, why did Christ have to die in the first place? And in the second episode, we talked about the curse and how he became a curse for us. In the third episode, we talked about the shame of the cross. And then in the fourth episode, we talked about the paradox of the cross, In the fifth episode, we talked about the sufficiency of the cross and why that debt sacrifice was satisfied
1: once and for all. That brings us to today, Scott. Exactly. And that will bring us to uh, the four Gospels. So, as we've mentioned in other Groundwork episodes before, uh, there was some scholar, some commentator uh, some time ago said, you know, all four of the Gospels are really passion narratives with long introductions. In other words, the main event is the cross and the crucifixion of Jesus and, of course, the resurrection, which we'll focus a little more on uh, for our Easter episode in the final episode of this series. But so when the, the person said that the Gospels are passion narratives of long introductions. They sort of mean everything up until that final week of Jesus' life was the intro. Now we get to the main event, the cross. And uh, each of the four Gospels, of course, has it, It brings us to Golgotha, which is uh, the place of the skull, and skull in Latin is calvarium, so that's where we get calvary, Calvary. Uh, and Golgotha means uh, skull, too. So we want to just briefly dip into, Daryl, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in this episode to see the different angles of the actual atoning event uh, that each of them shows us. So
0: with Matthew, he's writing to a Jewish audience, and he wants to prove that Jesus is the promised Messiah that has been coming over the centuries. And and the kind of Messiah that Jesus was really threw people off because they thought he was going to be the conquering king like David was. He's going to overthrow the Roman government. He's going to take over. But then this Messiah decides he wants to come and die for them. And that really threw people off because they did not expect that kind of Messiah. And so we look at this situation where Jesus is going into his trial, his crucifixion, and his death in Matthew 27,
1: and he talks about it here. So here is from Matthew 27, verse 45, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. And about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when some of those standing near heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now, leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, The earth shook, the rocks split, the tombs broke open, the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life, and they came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city
0: and appeared to many people. Scott, this line in verse 51 here where it says at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That is significant for Matthew to put in because he comes from this understanding of the Levitical law and how there's the outer court, the inner court and the Holy of Holies. And the, the veil, that curtain that was there separated and only the priest could go in right. once a year in the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, there would be one priest who would go in, have a rope attached to his leg. And if he died because God struck him down, then they would pull him out. But when that curtain torn from top to bottom happened, it's like God is saying, it's, anybody can come in. If there's no special person or intermediary you need anymore, Christ has paid the
1: price. So now we, anyone can enter. A holy God can't freely intermingle with unholy people, and that's why that veil was there. I mean, God lived in the midst of Israel, in the holy of holies, behind the veil, upon the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. True, but the veil reminded us there's a huge difference between God and you. He's holy, you're not, so stay outside. Now the veil has been removed, and there's only one explanation. We've been made holy now, so now we can go in. And what made us holy, well, what just happened on the cross, right? And I like, you know, you emphasize too, Daryl, Matthew makes sure to tell us that the veil got torn from the top. There you go. So you know who's doing the ripping, which I know some people today say, well, come on, we know God doesn't really live up in heaven. Heaven's not really above us. Well, true, but, you know, to this day in movies and TV shows, whenever some character says, come on, Lord, give me some help, where do they look? They look up. So we do still metaphorically think of God as above us. So the tearing of that veil from the top to the bottom says God's the one who's opening the door because now if you are in Jesus, you are holy as God is holy. We don't need to keep you separate anymore.
0: You know what I thought about when you were saying that, Scott, is that not only does the veil get torn from top to bottom so that God's people can go in, but it also so that God can come out. So we look at in Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes on the people and they become witnesses that Jesus says in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and the ends of the earth. So now we're vessels, we're the temple Mm. and the Holy Spirit is going out to these places to find everyone where they are. So now you don't even have to come in because God is gonna come out and meet you where you are. So it's really powerful to see that the veil had a two-way action to it. Mm-hmm. It's not just people can go into God's presence, but God's presence is gonna also come out because he's not limited by buildings, by temples, or by holy places at all. He wants to be in his people and among his people everywhere.
1: Yeah, that's a beautiful, beautiful point. This is sort of the universalizing of the presence of God, that God's on the move. Uh, and we'll see that in the book of Acts, right? I mean, and once the Holy Spirit's poured out on the disciples and they become the apostles, the sent ones, that's what apostle means, right? the sent ones, uh, the holiness of God can go everywhere, and the Holy Spirit's always going ahead of them in the book of Acts. They can't even keep up. Uh, Every time they get to someplace new, the Spirit's already been there, planting the seeds and and getting the ground uh, softened up for the gospel to take hold. Because Matthew was writing for a Jewish audience that were very literate in the Jewish scriptures, Matthew is bringing a whole lot of biblical threads together here and braiding together this tapestry of salvation by grace alone through the cross.
0: And what's beautiful about that, Scott, is because the veil is torn, we have divine access to God that we didn't have before. Because there you had to come to God a certain way and you had to come through a priest. But now that the veil is torn, God is saying, I want you to come in and have a relationship with me directly. I need you to have a relationship with me and me with you, and no intermediary other than Christ. You have access in this situation. And when we look at the rest of these other gospels, we want to look at the discussion of Christ's crucifixion continued. So stay tuned for this. What does it look like to honor and serve God in your marriage and family? Visit FamilyFire.com to discover how you can better live out your faith in the context of your relationships. At FamilyFire.com, you'll find articles and devotions curated to encourage you to stoke the Holy Spirit's flame in your home. You'll also find an online community that can help you explore what it means to follow the Holy Spirit's lead in your family as a spouse, parent, or even an in-law. Join the community! Be encouraged at FamilyFire.com.
1: I'm Scott Jose along with Gerald Delaney and you're listening to Groundwork. And Scott, we have been
0: talking about the death of Christ and how significant that moment was in history and how God had torn the veil and all the barriers for entering his presence are gone. Um, That's really exciting and that's really encouraging. So when we turn to the book of Mark, I mean, according to scholars, Mark is the shortest, the first gospel. It is the one that came out the earliest, and it is designed to help Gentile Christians understand the humanity of Jesus and who has
1: access to him. So Mark's crucifixion account comes in his 15th chapter. And there um, there are women uh, present when Jesus was crucified. Mark 15, verse 40. Some women were watching from a distance, and among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James the Younger, and of Joseph and Solomon. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. So Mark highlights the fact that in some ways the women disciples were more faithful than the male disciples who had all fled, right? Peter had disowned Jesus. Judas had obviously betrayed him and was gone. But all the other disciples had just sort of scattered to the wind after the Garden of Gethsemane. Only the women follow all the way to the end, to the cross. The women who had bankrolled Jesus' ministry, it appears, uh, the women who had supported him and prayed for him and followed him, they're there to the end.
0: Yeah, it's beautiful how Mark picks up that they're will be, in a very subtle way, he picks this up, there's no gender distinctions, Mm -hmm. the men are not in a hierarchy over the women, and he's humanizing the fact that there are men and women a part of Jesus' ministry, and even though that's a male-dominated context, Mark kinda thumbs his nose at that context and says, oh no, there are important women that are a part of this, and God loves men and women, male and female, he created them, he wanted to save them and redeem them as well.
1: And as we know from uh, Mark, uh, but the, also the other gospel accounts, uh, the women are also the faithful ones who come to that tomb uh, the day after the Sabbath, and they are the ones that are given the message, he is not here, he has risen. Yes. And they go back and tell the disciples, the men disciples, so again, there too, uh, the women become the first evangelists. They preach the gospel long before Peter does, or John does, or James, because they bring the good news to the disciples in, in all of the gospels, because they were the ones who went to the tomb when nobody else was around and so they're the ones who ran into the angels who gave them that message. So that's an interesting uh, angle to the crucifixion of Jesus from Mark but Daryl, let's now look at Luke
0: So Luke is a physician by trade. I don't think he even had a relationship with Jesus personally. He he gathered all this information about Jesus. Because he's a physician, he's really interested in the physical, what's happening in Jesus physically and emotionally. And he puts that in his depiction of the crucifixion and the death of Christ. But there are other parts of his story that stick out. The one of the stories that sticks out for me is the one where Pontius Pilate
1: is on trial. Jesus is on trial with Pontius Pilate. And Barabbas is there. Apparently, there was a tradition we find out in this passage. I don't know where it began, but that some maybe around the time of the Jewish Passover, kind of as an act of goodwill, they'd let somebody free who had been arrested. And this Barabbas was apparently kind of a bad actor. Uh, He was a criminal. He was a genuine criminal. And so Pilate's going to give them the choice of who to release, Jesus, who has now also been arrested, or Barabbas. I'm guessing Pilate figured it'd be an easy choice because Barabbas was a bad guy. He was dangerous. But the crowds had other ideas.
0: So let's look at that passage in Luke chapter 23. This is Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers and the people. And he said to them, you brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he has sent him back to us, as you can see, and he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. But the whole crowd shouted away with this man. Release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time, he spoke to them. Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for,
1: and surrendered Jesus to their will. So Pilate's trying to do the right thing. Um, Pilate's not a theologian. He has no idea that Jesus is sinless and, you know, the son of God. But he's a a smart enough jurist to know that these are beefed up charges. There's nothing to it. This man is falsely accused, whereas Barabbas was justifiably convicted of even murder, right? But nope. The crowd say, we'd rather have Barabbas running around free again than this Jesus fellow. So, you know, Pilate just accedes to their wishes. Although I do remember, Daryl, reading um, a little essay by the pastor and novelist uh, and writer Frederick Beekner who said, you know, the crowd's... Uh, decided to let Barabbas go free instead of Jesus. But of course, if Jesus had been given the same choice, he'd have set Barabbas free too, right? Because that's what Jesus does, right? He, he, He forgives and gives us a second chance. But yeah, so that's very interesting how insistent they were that Jesus had to die, even though Pilate said, what did he do? Nothing.
0: Yeah, it's crazy because we look at Barabbas as if he's the bad guy, but to be honest, we are Barabbas, <laughs> yep. we have rebelled. We have hated our brother, which is actually contributed to what the scripture calls murder. If we hate our brother or sister, we have broken the laws. We're the ones that are in rebellion. We've done the indirections against God. Okay. So it's interesting how we could look at Barabbas and shake our finger and, and shake our heads. But we need to be look, looking in the mirror because we are Barabbas that God is dying for, that Jesus is dying for. It's an interesting twist on that. If we look at it with humility, We're the reason for the death penalty. And Christ came to die for us.
1: And it's very, very interesting, too, Daryl. that surely, well, of course Jesus knew he was innocent. (laughs) Of course Jesus knew that he was being falsely accused. Uh, Of course Jesus knew Barabbas was the real criminal, not him. But he doesn't protest, right? He doesn't plead for his own life. I would, you would if if we were arrested falsely and and we're facing the death penalty, we'd be on our knees, you know, pleading for our life and pleading for a new jury or pleading for a new judge or anything.
0: No question.
1: But Jesus didn't because deep down he now understands, if he didn't understand all along, this is why he came. This is why he came. He came to give his life for people like Barabbas. And as you just said, Daryl, we're all Barabbas. Jesus came to give his life for us. That's the divine exchange that happens, and Luke is the one who brings it out in such a beautiful way. But there's one more gospel, the Gospel of John, and we'll look at that as we close out this program in just a moment, so stay tuned.
0: We're glad you've joined our Groundwork conversation. If you're enjoying today's discussion and want to download or listen again, you can find the audio podcast and transcript for this episode on our website, groundworkonline.com. Want to dig deeper? You can also find episode guides and blogs available to supplement your study. Curious about another episode or series we've mentioned? Search our episode library to find hundreds of conversations about God's Word and what it means for God's people today. Add your voice to our Groundwork conversation by visiting groundworkonline.com. And thank you. Support from listeners like you makes Groundwork possible. You're listening to Groundwork, where we dig into Scripture to lay the foundation
1: for our lives. And I'm Daryl Delaney. And I'm Scott Jose. And we're talking about the importance of the cross in this sixth episode of a seven-part series for Lent. We've been meditating on the cross of Christ. And in this program, going directly now to the four Gospels in each of their accounts, we've looked at Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now we're up to John. So we've been talking about different
0: things that have been happening around the actual story of the cross and some significant characters. But in John's gospel, we want to emphasize these different parts where he keeps saying the scripture is fulfilled. And so let's look at it here in John 19. It says later, knowing that everything had now been finished. And so the scripture would be fulfilled. Jesus said, I am thirsty a jar of wine vinegar was there. So they soaked the sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus's lips. When he had received the drink, he said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it was a day of preparation and the next day was to be a special Sabbath because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have their legs broken and the bodies taken down.
1: The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given this testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happened so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another Scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. You know what's interesting about
0: that is the Scripture may be fulfilled, verses 28, 36, and 37. It tells me that God preplanned this that he has already given prophecies about it hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. And the fact that Jesus is following the exact plan lets me know that God has a plan for not only salvation, but for my everyday life. It gives me hope. To know that I serve a God who is in control and knows the end from the beginning. And when things are out of control in my life, I can trust a God who knows what's happening. All the days that were ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. And that's encouraging to me because I can't see the future.
1: Exactly. John is the, the, let's say, the most theologically heady Of the four gospels. John's theology is pretty rich and thick. It begins with his opening chapter, and the beginning was the word. And, you know, it's very lofty. John uh, stands apart a little bit from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It was probably the last gospel written. You may have been aware of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So he he wrote a a much more theologically um, hefty um, gospel. And so there's a whole lot of stuff that's coming together here, Darrell. But I think that the main thing that John does want us to take away from this is that God knew exactly what he was doing. This was not some terrible act accident that happened to Jesus that had God just saying, whoa, no, stop, stop. This had to happen. And that's why in John, so, you know, we've done a series before on Groundwork on the the so-called the seven last words. And indeed, if you take all four Gospels, you can find seven different things that Jesus said on the cross, and no Gospel has all seven. Here in John, it is finished, is Jesus' final words. Uh, we just looked at one earlier where Jesus just breathes his last and doesn't say anything. But here it is finished. But notice, Daryl, he doesn't say, I am finished. right? Or this is the end. Or this is just a bad thing. Literally translated, this is the, the, the Greek verb for to be perfected. Totally the so. telos yeah the telos this is the fulfillment i have now reached the end goal so a telos is a goal so i don't mean to uh, trivialise it at all but you know in, in soccer matches um football as they call it in europe you know uh, there aren't that many goals but when somebody gets a goal you know well, it's goal their mind. right yeah and the goal that's kind of what jesus is saying goal i've hit the goal all is accomplished all is fulfilled again because of what you just said, Darrell, God's good plan. It's beautiful because when I think of that
0: loss verb that you're talking about, I think of a financial term. It's a financial term, the debt has been paid. Right. Paid in full, you get the stamp, that says paid in full, this is what John is trying to point us to, that Christ came and actually fulfilled it. And it's interesting to me because when when the rubber hits the road, I think about my sinful situation and where I came from and where we find ourselves. We were in an impossible situation. We didn't have enough, quote unquote, spiritual money to pay the debt that we incurred for our own sins. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. And because he... God loves us. He is the one that did something about that. He intervened into this. And that's what John went into great detail to explain. But the writer of Hebrews also talks about why God did this in the first place as well.
1: Right before we look at that, though, I will also mention just, uh, you know, to to tie this off, Daryl, that clearly John is presenting Jesus as the perfect Passover lamb. Yes. That's why it was important. His bones weren't broken, right? They broke the bones of the other men to induce such last-minute agony that it would finish them off. But Jesus' bones uh, were not broken. He was the perfect lamb. But indeed... When we get to Hebrews chapter 12, reflecting back on all of this, therefore, the writer says, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart.
0: Man, that encouragement is for us as well we can make it through these hard times and setbacks because we have a God we can come to. When we have sins, we can confess them. That phrase, the joy set before him sticks out to me, and I would love to believe that we're that joy. Even mm. though we have made a lot of mistakes and we're not perfect, he wanted to have a relationship with us, so he went through these great lengths to lay his life down for us, and I love that. Even though the cross is tragic, it's also beautiful at the same time, and this is the place that, we need to remind ourselves of that brings us hope.
1: And it goes back to the fourth episode of this series, Darrell, where we look at the paradox of the cross that through this bloody instrument of death came life, right? And now we see that despite this bloody instrument of horror, Jesus was able to look beyond it yeah, and see joy, the joy on the other side when he was able to save us and raise us. And we're going to talk about that in our next program. So thanks be to God for that.
0: Well, thanks for listening and digging deeply into Scripture with Groundwork. We're your hosts, Daryl Delaney and Scott Jose. And we hope you'll join us again next time as we conclude our series by discussing our participation in Christ's death and resurrection. Connect with us at groundworkonline.com to share what Groundwork means to you
1: or to tell us what you'd like to hear discussed next on Groundwork. Groundwork is a listener-supported program produced by Reframe Ministries. Visit reframeministries.org for more information. Our recording engineer is Dodd Morris, and our post production supervisor is John Reeder. Our senior producer is Courtney Jacob.